it was very awkward and it was like not a good time. It was very tense and uh, it was also very juvenile, I think, of both of us. Um, and, you know, I certainly made a lot of mistakes that I would handle differently if I could go back uh, in time. But you live and you learn and uh, you take those lessons and move forward with them. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 117, and today's guest name is Michael Dash. And if you have a partner or you've had a business partner in the past, you're going to really enjoy this episode because we all have that fear of what happens if we have a breakup with our partner what am I going to do? What's going to be the recourse? How is this business going to survive? And how am I going to mentally deal with this? Well, if I were to say that Michael had one heck of a business breakup, I would be understating it because it was a six-year lawsuit that resulted in an upwards of a million dollars in legal fees. After Michael decided to buy the remaining shares and the ownership interest from his partner of the company that they called Parallel HR Solutions, where they were doing recruiting and staffing for the finance and the technical space. And they had this whole agreement why he bought her out what was going to be going through the terms and the conditions and then it went south so on the show today michael describes the entire journey of starting the business what happened in the buyout the ramifications of that six-year lawsuit on his finances, the business, and his mental state. And then he's very, very motivating as he walks through why he's different, the things that he prioritizes in life now, what is important to him, the positivity that he wants to put into the world, and how he wants to make a big impact now that he's outside of this business, the negativity, and the vicious cycle that he was in with his business partner. So listen in as you hear Michael go through this transformation in his life but then also in the story that he shares in the podcast. And if you're sitting there thinking, why am I doing this? You're stuck in a situation, whether it's a partnership issue, a golden cage of a business that you want out of, just really listening to Michael go through that transformation and prioritize what's important to him. I think it's possible for all of us. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with Michael Dash. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. Looking forward to having you on the show. You and I have uh, a lot of common friends. We met at the YC Escape, and uh, you've got quite an interesting story. And um, you had a, a very long form post in our group, kind of given the, the rundown. And as you and I were just chatting before we got on the recording, we have there's a lot of entrepreneurs and owners that have gone through their journeys and tend to make it sound better and hide a lot of the the internal stuff. And you've uh, been very open and an open book about it. But so before we get really into the meat of it, why don't you kind of give our listeners a little bit of a backdrop of how'd you become an entrepreneur? You know, what was the business and um, what were some of the major milestones that you had as you were going? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I grew up in a family with an entrepreneur as a father. So early on, he had me working in his stores and taught me what hard work was. I I think I knew from that point on that I wanted to eventually at some point, I didn't know where or what, but I wanted to run the show, so to speak. I kind of like the uh, aspect of him being in charge. (laughs) What kind of business was it? So he had a a couple of businesses, import-export business and then a retail shop. And it was all around fine china and collectibles like Lalique, Baccarat, Waterford, Hummels, all that, Yadro, all that fun stuff, and, uh, and China. So I, I still say to this day, whenever I get married, eventually if that day does come, I'll probably know more about the China and the, uh, <laughs> the glasses than my spouse. Uh, so, uh, so that'll be an interesting dynamic. But yeah, so I grew up in that. He actually wanted me to take that over. Um, but I had zero interest in that business. Not a not an interesting business to me. And um, as it was really popular in the eighties, but as more women entered the workforce, then those specialty shops became uh, more challenging to run and to be profitable because the malls really, especially this is back east coast malls all over the place. So you have mm-hmm. your one stop shopping where you can shop, uh, you know, for 
your spouse, your kids, yourself, everywhere in one place. So mm-hmm. that kind of you know ended his business in the early two thousands. Uh, but I went on to take a job. Uh, I went to University of Maryland when I graduated there. I took a job in sports advertising for four years. Um, I, I did really well there, but uh, I disagreed with the ownership and how they ran the company. So I left. My good friend convinced me to go into staffing. He said he was at a staffing company for four years. He wanted me to join him. He said, you'd be awesome at this. We'd crush it together. So I'm like, all right, sounds good to me. So I took <laughs> I took a job at another staffing firm for uh, one year so I could learn everything on their dime. And then I eventually left and joined him. Uh, I worked with him for four years in New York City. Uh, and then uh, I was calling on E-Trade Financial and they didn't have any business in New York, New Jersey. But they said to me, if I knew somebody in Sandy, Utah, they're trying to hire 200 financial service reps Whoa. in the next three and a half weeks. Cool. So, at the time, my company didn't want any business outside New York and New Jersey. And I happened to know one person in staffing outside a metropolitan area who was in Utah. So <laughs> it was almost like the, like the gods aligned <laughs> like laid out there for me. So we put a bid on the project, won the project, filled all 200 positions on budget, on time. Holy and then got buckets. Right. Then we got additional projects in Alpharetta, Georgia, Jersey City, and Tampa, Florida, and we filled 800 positions in one year just for E-Trade. Holy cow. How many people did you have to interview to get 800 people placed? Oh, a lot. A lot. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. So, so what was your, was your buddy before you guys started the business? What was he doing? And, or did he run the business and then you went and joined him? Yeah, so he was a president of that business. Um, he was working for uh, an owner that we both knew. We all grew up in the same town together. So we had the owner who grew up in our town, then my buddy who worked his way up to president, then he brought me on as director. Um, and then after all that E-Trade stuff happened, he actually got into a dispute with the owner. They ended up breaking apart. And that's where I kind of exited. And I was go- I went to Utah to help open parallel HR solutions with my ex-business partner uh, based off the success we had and all that E-Trade stuff. And I was going to stay there for six months and I ended up staying there for 11 years. <laughs> six months, 11 years. I mean, that's what the you difference, know. right? Yeah. What do they say? Six of one, half a dozen of another one? <laughs> yeah, not not exactly. <laughs> something like that. So, so, did, so the, your buddy that was the president, so you, that whole business disappeared and then you guys started parallel HR. No, that yes, yes and no. That business did disappear because he got in a legal dispute with the owner and he ended up getting fired like in court. Uh, he's the president of a company, built it up to 11 million. That company ended up dissolving, ended up going away, being run into the ground because my buddy was gone and the owner mm-hmm. didn't know what he was doing. Uh, and my buddy started his own company in New York. And then I went to Utah with my ex-business partner. Got it. I had worked with her for that one year when I, the first year in staffing that I okay. went to work with this other company. That's where I met her. Got um, it. So I went to Utah. I was going to spend six months and help her get the company up and off the ground and running. And I landed a huge account right away, uh, overstock.com, which is a big client of mine. They're based in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it was just off to the races. And basically my buddy was offering me 30% to go back to New York and help him open up. And she was offering me 50% to stay in Utah. And I made all decisions based on money at that point in my life. So it wasn't, it was kind of a no brainer to me. And I stayed in Utah and uh, had to tell my buddy that I grew up with and knew all these years. And we had talked about opening all these years together. I had to tell him, uh, yeah, I changed my mind. I made a different decision. How how do you take that? Um, It was, it was one of the toughest conversations at the time that I ever had to, had to have because we had been talking about it for years that we were going to open up together. And I understood why he was only offering me the 30 and not the 50% because he was in the business four or five years longer than right. I was. Right. He had a lot more context. He put a lot more sweat equity into it all and you know all that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, like I said, I just didn't, I made decisions solely on money. And to me, 50% was more than 30%, even though I didn't really look at how big each pie would be at the end of the day. So, uh, how big the pie is, is kind of relevant to assess that. Right? The, the, the circle graph looked the same, but you just didn't have any numbers. Tied to them, right? yeah. 
Because at that point, both the circle grass had nothing in them. So, <laughs> so what was the so this so your partner there? What what what? How did you guys structure? I mean, and what was the was it just off to the races because you guys are growing so fast? But like, what was the kind of the original foundation of like the equity and like the operating room? Was there anything any kind of communication around where? Because I know that's kind of where this you know probably lead to right is you know how does that make sense? Like, what did you have? Did, yeah, basically, so we wanted to be certified as a minority-owned, woman-owned business. Um, so we, we couldn't do it minority-owned, but we were able to do it women-owned. So she owned 51% of the company. Um, and I came in, and then it was her her husband at the time set up all our infrastructure and everything. So he had like a 9% interest or something. Mm-hmm. So I came in at 40% with a 9% option. Mm-hmm. basically so upon sale or anything you know i would it would be split 51.49 on the mm-hmm. sale number mm-hmm. um but as far and then and then in terms of payments and commissions and salary it was 50-50 got it did you guys have any um any distinguished um rules around ownership versus like salaries and w2 because there's a lot of people that get stuck into the hey we're both owners we have the same salaries same distributions or was there just kind of grow and we're both going to split everything 50 50 have the same salaries yeah so we didn't really pay ourselves salaries at first we just uh you know we had other corporations kind of set up we're kind of doing it that way in the beginning where we uh would pay our corporations our individual corporations for our services that we were providing to the company only when we had when we were profitable and made money, um, so we weren't taking like salaries at first because mm-hmm. uh, we were hiring people. So right. you're, that, you're piling it all back into the business. <laughs> yeah. So anything we made at the end of the year, then we would take distributions or whatever and pay each other. But we we ended up uh, switching that and then being W two employees um, at some point. But after six, after five years, about I bought her out. Of the company, so let's let's kind of take some of these milestones because we don't have to go into the technical stuff because I know you've got a great story about kind of you know some changing things that have happened in your life. But like, what was like? How big did the business go from employees to revenue size? I mean, and what led to the triggering event of you you buying her out? So we were a full time staffing company. Um, Permanent or okay. Permanent employment was our main focus. We did some contract, but permanent employment. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're obviously not having people on your payroll billing a lot of billable hours. So the revenue model looks a little different. Mm-hmm. So we, we had built the company up to about five and a half million in revenue over the first five years. And that's when I bought her out. Mm-hmm. I think we had at that point about 30 employees okay. uh, with offices in... Salt Lake City, Utah, Lewiston, Idaho, and Nasik, India. And uh, so we had three offices with about 30 people spread around. And uh, I was looking to expand. And I wanted to go into New York. And I wanted to build it up more. And she was really content at the size of the company. She wanted to spend more time with her kids and all this other stuff. So she was working less and less. And I was working more and more. That's where the friction started happening. I mean, I was working 10, 12 hour days and she was working like six hour days and spending all this time with the kids, which I was fine with. I'm like, Hey, if you want to spend time with your kids, I totally get that. Like, mm-hmm. I kind of like, I kind of like your kids. I'd like to spend some time. With them. But, um, you know, if I'm working <laughs> 10, 10, 12 hours and you're working like six, eight hours, then this isn't a 50, 50 deal and we're not going to split. Things. Mm-hmm. So then how did you get, like, how did you approach that final conversation then? And how did you value the business and, de- and determine which route you're going? So we had our lawyers actually do that. Um, but I angled it. So I bought the business cause that's what I wanted to do. So, mm-hmm. I yep. mean, I had the relationships with all the clients and she had really built the internal operations and had a lot stronger relationships with some of the employees, like for instance, the India office. She opened it herself. Like I had never met the India team. I worked with them every day. We talked every day, but we didn't meet in person. Like she had been over there three times. Mm-hmm. So uh, we we just got to a point though where we were butting heads, and there would be days we didn't even speak to the offices right next to each other. So mm-hmm. it was very awkward, and it was like not a good time. It was very tense and. Uh, 
it was also very juvenile, I think, of both of us. Um, and, you know, I certainly made a lot of mistakes that I would handle differently if I could go back uh, in time. But you live and you learn and uh, you take those lessons and move forward with them. So then uh, did you pay her out over time? And then that was so that was five years in and you said you were there for 11 years. So what are you know, how did that kind of come and go? And then what was the, kind of the ne- next couple of chapters? Well, I wish I could say it came and gone, but it came and it sat there for a long time. So after we went to the lawyers, the lawyers had us in separate rooms going back and forth, like trying to negotiate. a. Uh, the first thing we wanted to do is negotiate a number and then decide who was going to buy. So like a shotgun clause or something like that, just go yeah, back well, and I mean, you yeah, wanted the so business, right? I mean, so I wanted it the whole time. So yeah. I was telling the lawyers, I'm like, it doesn't make any sense for her to keep it. She doesn't have any relationships mm-hmm. with any of the clients. But you need to go back in there and keep telling her that. And um, so eventually, anyway, I, I, I got what I thought I wanted, which at the time I did want, which was I wanted to buy the company. So I did. Um, so I had to take a big loan, obviously, to pay her off and all this other stuff. But um, within six months of purchasing that company, I found out she, uh, well, I thought, violated the contract because she actually had an affair with the director in India. And the director in India, who she's actually married to now, she she got divorced from her husband, and then married the director in India, brought him over here, has twins with him. Okay, so like within the first six months of me buying the company, we were doing like a million dollars in 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 deals over out of our India office, mm-hmm. and it just tanked. It just completely tanked. She was over there like three times within the first six months, and uh, because was she was just distracted, was she just distracting him? And he oh just yeah, was they weren't working hard for me. They didn't give a shit about me. Like mm-hmm. they didn't care. Like there was her. She was their savior, and blah 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 blah. So there were like, uh, uh, I don't know, I can't remember, 14 employees. And like uh, one day, like when she was over there, like nine of them walked out on me. Oh, my God. Yeah. So um, and you, so your, your payment and the value wasn't tied to like retention of revenue or profits or anything like that? No. No. Um, I just paid what I thought the value was. And then mm-hmm. I paid a big chunk up front on closing. And then I owed... Uh, four more payments over two years, every mm-hmm. six months, mm-hmm. right? And when the first payment was due after all this was going on, you know, I was like, hell no, you know, I mean, the company just, I just had paid her a million dollars for the company mm-hmm. and the company was just going down the tube. And all of a sudden I'm like in a sinking ship after I just paid all this money, which I owe. Mm-hmm. And she, and, and I felt she's disrupting everything and violating the agreement. So I had my attorney send her a letter saying that we were doing an internal investigation into all this. And then she countered by suing me. So then I countered by counter suing her. Oh so God. then we were off to the races and that lawsuit lasted six years, six years. So I had friends who were married and divorced in a shorter period of time <laughs> than my lawsuit. Lasted. Oh, I, the mental energy that just gets sucked out of that. I mean, how are you, how are you dealing with that and running a company? Uh, very poorly. Um, I, I didn't do a good job. I was angry all the time. I, I felt very heavy feeling. I wasn't a great leader. I uh, kind of did things by the seat of my pants and I made a lot of poor emotional decisions, uh, especially with the lawsuit, but also in the business itself, because at the same time I was trying to expand into New York. So here I am like in New York, hiring all these people in New York, these new employees, trying to integrate them with the India team, the Utah team, the uh, uh, Idaho team. And it was just way too much for me to handle. And I didn't have the right people in place to, be able to elevate what we already had. So I made, uh, you know, I made emotion, some emotional decisions. And uh, I always took things personal too. Like if somebody wasn't working hard, I took it personal. Like that's an attack on me. You're not working hard, right? And that's not how you run a business, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, with the lawsuit especially, one of the biggest lessons I learned is that there are two people not to ask for advice when you're in a lawsuit. 
One are the actual lawyers. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet you they paid for a lot of stuff over six years too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In their personal lives, they were, they were doing all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're fine. They're getting paid, you know, whatever. They don't care. Um, do you know who the others are? Not to ask for advice. If you're in a I don't know where this is going. No, I, I'm curious in your answer. Your, your parents. Okay. Because, that. because your parents have a bias to protect their children. And so however they're going to answer, even if they're very pragmatic, right? They can't help but want to protect you. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's attacking, at least in my scenario, whenever I was attacked, in this lawsuit, you know, my father, who I was who I'm very close to, his his advice would be attack back. <laughs> right? Don't you dare let her do this to you. You know? Like, and that permeated most of my throughout most of my decisions throughout this entire lawsuit. So I was, he didn't realize he was doing this. Mm-hmm. And he didn't, uh, you know, that's just his nature, right? right that's just right. how he is. So he thinks he's doing it in a protective manner. But I, and I didn't realize it until after the fact either, because I was so emotionally wrapped up in it and emotionally involved and took it so personal that I couldn't separate what is the smartest thing for the business and what is the smartest thing for myself personally and my sanity and my finances and all of that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't separate that away from my ego. My ego, which says, nobody's going to F with me, mm-hmm. right? My ego, which says, if you attack, I attack back. My ego, which says, I don't lose. I only win. Even like, who the hell even knows what that means? That's, it's so. It, yeah, it, it depends on what your definition of winning is, right? It, it's just such a juvenile way of thinking. Like you're a child, right? And, you know, and, and, and that's how I made a lot of decisions, which exacerbated my situation. And which mm-hmm. continued to extend it year over year when I could have um, you know, definitely made some decisions where I took a couple steps back. If I had the tools I have now, maybe I meditated before I, you know, told my attorney, go do this or go do that. Um, and, and I'd come back. It's like a shotgun. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd come back in a calmer state and be able to make a, you know, a, a more strategic decision for everything that was involved instead of shooting from the hip, um, driven by and fueled by emotion. So where were you and what was the triggering point where you realized what was going on, that the self-perpetuating situation kept getting worse and was exacerbated by the emotions? I mean, like, what happened or like, was there an epiphany? Like, how did that, how did you... Where were you and what happened? Uh, I was in Bali, actually. And it, it was a couple of years ago. I took a trip with, uh, I'm part of a bunch of these tribes, like you and I are in YC, right? I consider that a tribe. I'm in a bunch yeah. of tribes, right? One of them is called Unconventional Life. And it was like, it's deemed as a business accelerator, but it's really a lot of uh, people who are trying to create the life on their own terms and live the life they were meant to live, right? So, you know, people who don't want to necessarily go into a nine-to-five job and go into an office, you know, people doing all different sorts of uh, things, like, uh, that wouldn't be in my life if I wasn't part of this crew. So, like, somebody doing energy or astrology or, like, stuff, uh, somebody doing, like, energy or astrology and stuff like that. Like, in the past, I would laugh at those people, and I would be like, they're a scam. Like, I wouldn't even be able to talk to them or take them serious. But um, but now I have a new outlook on, on, on life because uh, you can't make a judgment on something you've never been exposed to, which I used to always do. Mm-hmm. I used to always judge things I was never exposed to. So, I mean, that it's, it's another sign of ego. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so I was like, what in that then? What, like, was it like a breakout or a person? Yeah. Okay. So it was a breakout session where two people were talking about flow consciousness and living in flow. And the whole premise of that is uh, how you make decisions, making decisions from your heart versus your head all the time. And if it's not a hell no, it should be, excuse me, if it's not a hell yes, it should be an F no in everything you do in your life. 
And that's just not how I made decisions. Like I just made, like if a friend called me up and said, Hey, let's go out tonight. Let's go to this place. And I really didn't want to go. Like I'd allow them to convince me to go. And, uh, you know, and that's how I live my life. Mm -hmm. I allowed other people to influence decisions that, that I made. And, um, it's good to get input from people and everything, but when, when you're living a life like that, you're not living to your highest intuition, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really what it's all about. And I called that BS on everything they said when I was sitting and listening to them. They, they said, hey, let's talk afterwards. And so I talked to them for about an hour afterwards. I still didn't believe what they were saying because they were giving, like they were just telling me about all these amazing things that's happened in their life by living these principles. And they've studied this for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And um, they were offering this course, um, you know, when we got back to the States online. And my first intuition was like, no, again, this is a scam. This is what I think about all these people. They, they pull you <laughs> in. They, they kind of fish it really in a little yeah. bit. And then they hook you. Oh, yeah, it's $800 for your single <laughs> course. And, you know, my whole attitude towards that is it's you know, going to scam me. But after I spoke to them, when I started, when I flew back from Bali to the U.S., I had, it's a long flight, so I had a lot of time to think about things. And I just started thinking to myself, you know, would it be so bad to live a different way? Mm. Like, would it be so bad to be optimistic every day? Just questioning your paradigm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I just felt so heavy as a person. Every day I woke up, I just felt weighed down and heavy. Mm-hmm. And I had all these things that were going on and a lot of other things that I haven't even discussed, but all these things that were going on in my life and I felt stuck. Uh, but, and you know, I used to be the guy who walked down the street and if somebody was uh, walking on the other side and they were looking at me in my mind, I was thinking, what the F is that person looking at? <laughs> yeah. Just, just, right? like, just feeling like everybody's out to get you. <laughs> totally. Instead of just being like smiling at a stranger and saying hello. Where did all that come from? Was it, can you have you pinpointed it? Well, I mean, it's kind of the East Coast, you know, you grow up on the East Coast, you grow up with a certain mentality. It's really like, you know, if you're working in New York City, especially just grind, 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 work, 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 the more, you know, nicer suits, bigger watches, nicer cars, like, you know, status, this status, that. And, you know, I got sucked into all that. And, you know, I also had a, a addiction issues. So I had a gambling addiction uh, for 25 years. Uh, oh, you know, I've, I've been clean for 13 years. I started gambling when I was seven years old. Like my uncle introduced me to it. And that got me in a very negative mindset as well. So I was like always just, just negative about mm-hmm. shit. Um, and, you know, then that affects. But, but at the same time, then at a party or something, I'd be the life of the party. Nobody would know a thing was going, going on or going wrong. Right. Um, but I was miserable. It was just an escape for me. Yeah, the so, internal conflict must have been just super heavy. <laughs> so, what, what, you know, as you started asking yourself those questions, I mean, how, like, I mean, there, there was probably cracks in your reality then. I mean, what was the, some of the first actions and how, how did you start looking at all the things that you were going on in different perspectives? I mean, how, like, what was the kind of the chain of thoughts? I mean, I can tell you the first action. I remember the first day I got to Bali before I even went into that room and heard that session and had this epiphany. I was talking to a girl there about how I was wasting so much of my life watching reality television every night for like two hours every night. (laughs) So exhausted from the business that I would just come home. I'd go work out and then I'd come your brain. Yeah. Just numb my brain. And I made a commitment to her that first night that the first thing I was going to do when I came back is get rid of my cable boxes and return them to the, to the comp- cable TV company. Hmm. And so I, at what, I, I did kind of fib a little bit because it wasn't the first thing I did. I actually had to watch the DVR saved up and clear everything <laughs> off the DVR. <laughs> one last hit, right? <laughs> one last fix, right? <laughs> so I did all that and then I returned them. And I remember how amazing I felt by doing that one little thing. Hmm. Like just going into Xfinity, which is a company that's called Utah, and giving mm-hmm. them my boxes back. And they're like, oh, we'll give you this free and that free. And that. I'm like, I don't want anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to be free. 
Okay. <laughs> I want to be great. So I remember taking pictures and posting it and it just felt like this weight off my shoulder. It, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's hard to describe, but just so that little move set gave me a little bit momentum to take the next move to, do, to start listening to podcasts, for instance, right? We were talking before the show about podcasts and uh, Lewis House, which is a great podcast that I always listen to now. Yeah. And I never had listened to a podcast before that. So I started incorporating some of these positive podcasts into my morning. So instead of listening to Howard Stern and sports radio, which I always listen to and which are entertaining, but they're mind numbing. You don't have to think, you know, it doesn't help put positive thoughts in your mind, get your day started right. I then shifted over and listened to something that was a little bit more inspiring for me and positive. And then that starts your day off a little different and you start incorporating, you know, small changes. And, you know, I, what I always like to say to people is the smallest change can lead the biggest outcome mm-hmm. it's about taking that initial first step regardless of what it is and i didn't realize it at the time that that initial step of um, returning these cable boxes would then lead to another small step another small step another small step. and all of a sudden that made like holy cow massive change mm-hmm. right um just by taking those small steps because if you think about hey i want to change all this in my life like it becomes daunting mm-hmm. and overwhelming mm-hmm. and you're like oh my god i can't but if you really, break, right? You know, it's just like, and and you, you, the, our minds are the most powerful thing that we have. We can convince our minds anything, okay? Whether it's to stay on that, you know, to do five more reps in the gym, or whether get off that treadmill, or eat that extra ice cream, or you know, the world is out to get me, or I can't trust this person, or I got to work harder, whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? Whatever it is, positive or negative. Like our mind can control the actions that we take. And it's up to us to program our minds with positive actions. So, and surround ourselves with positive people because that's kind of how you're going to follow them or lead um, if you have those type of people around you. And so what were some of the things that you were realizing, like the feedback that you're getting? So obviously your, your life is changing as this. And then how about the interaction with your business? How did you start looking at the lawsuit and your employees, the people that you're surrounding yourself with? Because I think in the context of the question, Michael, is that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they build, like I was telling you before the, the um, recording that, you know, like I, that there's some, a lot of egos are driven behind building businesses from, you know, the top line revenue and people getting these groups and it's just compare, compare, compare. And then, you know, it was our personal situation that kind of changed our paradigm as well. But like a lot of these entrepreneurs, they get to this point where then they're stuck because like all of a sudden they themselves start to change, but then they're in, they're surrounded by vendors, clients, and, you know, employees in this whole situation that how do you change when you're in the situation? So how did you ripple those different things into the business and the, the situation that you're in? So interesting question. I, I don't know that I did. Okay. I continued to, so I, I started changing my outlook on things, but I realized that when I had certain situations come up, especially let's go to the lawsuit, okay, where I actually had a chance to settle right before we went to trial, mm-hmm. I didn't. Why? Because I was still, I thought I had grown and I wasn't quite ready. I had to learn another lesson and um, I emotionally, I wasn't done doing cost benefit analysis in my head as to what the right thing to do because I was so involved because I was already five and a half years into the suit and then we were finally going to trial, but I was, you know, offered, yeah, we discussed the settlement right before trial and there was an amount we kind of came close to agreeing to, but never quite pulled the trigger. And, uh, you know, I, I just didn't, I, I didn't do it. And I didn't realize that I was making this, I was, again, I went back, asked my, you know, my, my dad what, what he thought. And like, and then after I made the decision and all of a sudden we're getting prepared for trial and stuff and the fees are just mounting and mounting. And I could have ended all that. Um, so when I actually went through a six day trial, right? Mm. This is all over 350 K by the way. Yeah. I believe it. 
So I went over a six-day trial. The jury actually came back and they found that I didn't owe her 350. That or I technically I owed her the 350, but she caused 260k of damages. So the net was 90k that I owed her. Right? But no, it gets better. So like the judge though said, I'm not certifying this ruling until you both agree on attorney fees. So now we're trying to agree on five and a half years of attorney fees. She wants, <laughs> shit. She wants a half a million dollars in attorney's fees. From me. And I'm like, hell no, because she technically was the prevailing party. Even though she was trying to get 350 and they are awarding her 90K. So this went on and on and oh on. Oh my God. So this is eight months later and they still can't work out the attorney's fees. So that's when I'm just, and she was threatening if we don't work these out, you know, I'm going to appeal. She could still appeal the verdict. And then I'm going to appeals court. And then that's another year to two years. And I had already been going on for six years. <laughs> and I was just like, look, I'm, I can't do this anymore. Like I, I told my attorneys, or I, did, I, I said, I'm just going to call her up and, and offer her something to settle this. Because I don't, it was either pay her or pay the attorneys. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the fees are just keeping on mounting up. Mm -hmm. The attorneys were ruthless in their fees. You know, I did not, I had a worse experience with my attorneys than I did with um, suing your partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So, so I ended up calling her and settling on the 350 that I originally owed her. After the jury ruled that I actually technically only owed her 90K. Because. because because I didn't like with the with the fees and with all that stuff. Like I just didn't want it to go on and on. We it was it was clear that we were not going to agree on attorney's fees. And then it would go to the judge, and then the judge would have to make a ruling, and then she could appeal that, or I could appeal that. And then now we're talking six months more, a year more, and the attorney's fees are racking up and everything after six years. I'm just like, there's no way I'm not doing this anymore. I'm like, I don't care if I lose everything I have. So I made a decision that I was going to sell the company and take the money from the sale and pay off the lawsuit. And that's exactly what I did. Oh my gosh. I mean, so. And it so felt many, amazing. I was going to say it. Like it, there's so many questions. And so it felt amazing, even though like I spent on this whole lawsuit, right. Between uh, her and attorneys, a million dollars, $1 million <laughs> should be in my bank. But it's not, right? So all those years of working and everything down the drain. So now I have like no money, but I don't care because <laughs> like that is awesome. not how I live my life, right? And first of all, I, uh, I know how to make money. So if, if it came to it and I needed to go and sell something, I, I could sell ice to a damn Eskimo. I, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable in being able to make money. So, you know, that's why I was fine, like selling the company and taking everything that was all the proceeds from the sale and settling this lawsuit and, and paying these attorneys off because, um, because I'll figure it out down the road. And, and plus, it's not how I make decisions in life anymore. Like, my what I want to do is impact other people. Okay. And you don't need money to do that. Obviously, I need to make a living somehow. But the best feeling right now is. I actually don't know how I'm going to do that. And um, because I'm on a six month transition contract from selling the company, mm -hmm. I have one month left. And then after that, I, I, I'm writing my book. But other than that, how I'll make money, I'll figure it out. It's more of living in that flow, state of flow, um, and being able to choose what projects you want to be a part of that are of the highest level of interest that are going to bring the highest excitement to you that you can really make an impact on. And I'm finally, after 20 something years, 30 years, whatever, I'm old, I'm finally in that position to do that and not have any restrictions of you have to do this or you have to do that, which so many people box themselves in and convince themselves that they can't change it, but they can because I did. Where were you when you had this switch in the feeling where you felt the the, the shackles come off? Um, so when I sold the car, I mean, it, it slowly started happening. Like settling the lawsuit was like felt great. Uh, and then selling the company also felt great because I actually 
became, I, I started to have an adversarial relationship with my own company. Mm-hmm. Like I started hating my own company. Because you saw all that garbage in every aspect of the business is my guess. I just hated the business. I started like, you know, it's not, I didn't have a great business set up to begin with. Um, doing direct hire and everything. Um, you don't have that consistent flow of uh, contract of like billing coming in. So it's very high pressurized. Um, so we shifted the model a little bit, but it was just a bad business model and it, it wasn't a great sustainable business the way I had it set up. And it's extremely pressurized and you're just dealing with people all the time. And like, I love people, but I don't need uh, to get a phone call that, you know, somebody overslept their alarm 45 minutes late for an interview. Like, I don't care. Okay, like this is not what I want to spend my time with at this point in my life. I always, uh, I, I always wondered about the people that are in the recruiting business because you, I, I, I know a lot of them, and you start it because you like people and you know connections and know how to, you know, move people in the right direction. But then all of a sudden, people become your inventory, and you end up seeing people in a different light. And I, I this one gal, she's like, she became super cynical. You're just like, oh my gosh, why are these people just not doing the things that they should be doing? So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I found if you lower your expectations, uh, you know, you're, you're always pleasantly surprised. <laughs> well, that's not ideal, right? <laughs> I'm not saying it's ideal. I'm just saying that that worked for me. Who'd you, who'd you sell the business to? Uh, so I actually sold it to uh, my best friend, uh, who got me into the business to begin. No way! And yeah, yeah. So everything comes full circle, and he got me in a business, and he's getting me out of the business. So he had a he has a twenty million dollar company in New York that focuses primarily on nurse nurse staffing and admin staffing, mm-hmm. and he wanted to add tech technology staffing mm-hmm. to you know, his uh, suite of services. So he bought it. Wow. Was it an uh, uh, earnout or upfront payment or a combo or what was the, the structure of it? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's kind of a upfront payment. I, I needed the money to settle the lawsuit basically. Yep. yep. So, yeah, so well, let's, you know, with what you've got going on right now and how your mindset has changed so much. And as I've been, you know, as we've been following each other in different circles, I mean, explain, I don't know, is there principles that you're running your life on in your day to day or like, as you look to the next venture, who are the, I know part of being an activator, you can kind of give them a pull. I want to hear, you know, how you're interacted with that. But then you were at Lewis House's uh, conference. So what are the things that you're doing? And are there principles and there's kind of, there, is there a foundation that you're building to, to move forward with? Yeah. Well, first off, I'm writing my book, which is called Chasing the High. And it's really about my entrepreneurial journey, uh, about addiction, about lawsuits, about the lessons that I've learned along the way and about, uh, you know, the, the challenges in overcoming them. So uh, I really want to dedicate my life now to helping others whether it's helping others not make the same mistakes I did from an entrepreneurial aspect, whether mm-hmm. it's helping uh, others through recovery because I've gone through that, or whether it's you know helping the homeless and feeding the homeless, like whatever it is, or helping mm-hmm. humanitarian things. I'm involved in all aspects of these things. So that's kind of what the book is about. And I'm going to Bali again. Uh, the end of November, day after Thanksgiving, I have a one-way ticket, and I'm not coming back till the book is finished. So, oh, cool! I'm about three quarters of the way done with the book, so I think I should be able to bang it out in the month of December, and uh, then come back, and then uh, you know, probably book will be out in March, I would assume, March or April. So I'm d- doing that. I started a new series called Fate, F-A-T-E, from addict to entrepreneur. And I interview former addicts who are now entrepreneurs and have multi-million dollar businesses. And I write articles for Thrive Global about those interviews, which is Ariana Huffington's publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've, I'm possibly going to look to turn that into a television show. Uh, so I could, I could totally see that uh, being a show on like TLC or something. So Super I'm, cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see what happens with that. So those are um, kind of the two things, uh, two of the several other things that, that I'm working on. Um, and I also partnered with a company called Ignite Journeys, and I'm going to Mexico with them on a four-day humanitarian trip where they go into 
um, like impoverished areas and they give back to the community and they, they take executive teams though. So that's their spin. They take executive teams for like a week uh-huh. uh, or for, excuse me, for like four days, you know, to these places where the executive team gets to spend time with each other outside of the office and build like a different type of bond and relationship <laughs> and give back to the community. Right. The community right, that's impact. awesome. Yeah. So they want me to be an ambassador for them. So they invited me on a trip to check it out. And uh, if that goes as expected, then I most likely, you know, will will be promoting their service as well, and maybe you know, reaching out to my, uh, biz, uh, you know, my business contacts. Mm-hmm. Which I, I can't, you know, I don't want to. I mean, it's eleven years, fifteen years, really, of, of relationships. So I'd like to be able to, you know, keep continue. nurturing them. Yep. Yeah, keep nurturing them in some aspect, especially something positive like that. So those are like those are the things that I'm working on right now. In terms of your original question, which was like kind of the pillars of what I live by and everything. Yeah. Um, so we we did start activation um, a couple of uh, like a year or so ago, and um, was it a year ago, two years ago? I can't. It was around the same time frame. Everything kind of happened. Um, it was two years ago. And uh, Parveen and I and our buddy Joey were actually driving in a car from Park City up to uh, an event YEC had um, in Utah. And Parveen turned to me and he said, I'm going to activate everybody at this event. And like, well, what do you mean you're going to activate everybody? He's like, I'm just going to make sure every, I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, I'm going to make sure everybody's having the highest level of excitement, that they're just pumped up, that they're present, not worrying about everything else going on, that they're really authentic and really enjoying the experience and all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, that sounds cool, but um, I'm going to activate more people than you do. <laughs> so, i've never heard this original story so this is good to hear finally so we're, we're driving up there and we just start activating everybody and everybody's like what the hell are these guys doing right <laughs> um, so there was a big like uh, uh a big response to it afterwards and people were li- really like into it and energetic about it and so we decided to actually start something we thought hey i think we have something here so you know we started um we came up with the five core principles of activation, and it stands for PAPER, P-A-P-E-R. So it's positivity, authenticity, passion, empathy, and resilience. And we try to live by those five core pillars you know, on a day-to-day basis. I know I try to do it in my life, um, and that's what our movement is all about. And uh, you know, we were just kind of tired of seeing everybody complaining uh, whether it's about the elections, like, because this is kind of how it started. It was back two years ago, complaining mm-hmm. about everybody posting. This is so divisive. People complaining about their mother-in-law, their father-in-law, their this, their that. And instead of like being grateful and having gratitude for everything that we have, people's tendencies are just to bitch and moan about what they don't have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, being able to kind of put something positive out there, it's also a reminder to myself every day that, you know, hey, yeah, you got a roof over your head, you know, you're in the United States of America, the, you know, land of the free, um, you can do anything you want. I grew up in a middle-class family. I have nothing to complain about, nothing, right? When I was bitching and moaning about this lawsuit and bitching and moaning about my employees and bitching and moaning about my clients, and bitching and moaning about my, the, the bank cutting my credit line off and you know, every single thing when I look back on how I was acting was complaint, 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 negative, negative, negative. Um, and it was on autopilot. Like I just did not have the exposure to the tools to think positively, to be optimistic. I, I wasn't exposed to it because I didn't let it in. But as soon as I started exposing myself to it, I could slowly shift my mindset and slowly incorporate new things to really live a better life mm-hmm. and to make sure that whatever I do, like it's truly what I, from the heart am driven by. And, you know, it's truly what I feel like I've been put on this earth to do. So like, I like to consider myself an expert in how not to do shit. <laughs> so what are those, like, you know, you got this book and we don't, you know, we don't have to give away the meat of it. Cause I want all the listeners to go pick it up when you have it. But like, what are some of the main lessons 
you know, the, the main shit that you said you shouldn't do, you know, and yet there's a lot of stuff that you've shared that you've, you've obviously learned a lot from because you're way different. You never talking about, it's all about growing and creating the new person that you want to be. But like, if you're, if you if you're, if one of the listeners is stuck or they're in that uh, negative feedback loop, you know, what are the, what are the lessons that you learned and the things that they should be doing to get out of it? Well, the first thing I would say is emotional decision-making. Nothing good happens on text message. Nothing good happens making a m- emotional decision. When you're in the middle of something and it's a trigger point for you, you're going to know that. You have to be able to identify your trigger points. Mm-hmm. So an easy example is my trigger point is an email from my lawyers. Okay. <laughs> Whenever I see the email come in with the lawyer name on it, okay, I know I'm going to be triggered. So mm-hmm. I created a folder. I can see when the folder, you know, highlights itself when a new email has come in and I make sure sometimes I don't read that email for two days. I make sure I'm in a great mood. Okay. <laughs> so whatever happens, I'm going to react to it, you know, in a much more pragmatic fashion, mm-hmm. much more relaxed fashion. Sometimes I would go and I would go into the other room and literally meditate for 15 minutes. Then I would get up and read the email. Right. So just taking a step back and a deep breath before you react to something and not acting emotionally about it, regardless of how much emotion it involves, because there's a bigger picture to it. Mm -hmm. Like every action has a reaction. So if you're going to send something, expect you're going to get something back. And then it's going to just, it's going to be that much more challenging or difficult to solve that particular issue you're dealing Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. And again, this isn't just for entrepreneurs. I mean, this is just life. Yep. Right. Because I did this in other areas of my life as well. So I would say that that's kind of like the, the first thing that I learned. And then about being stuck, uh, you know, it's daunting when you say you want to change your whole life. Like if you look at it from that, it's like if you're trying to lose weight and you're like, I need to lose 100 pounds. Right. If anybody actually looked at that and said, I got to lose 100 pounds, like most people will never start. Right. Because it's too big of a hill to climb. Like I just, for instance, I just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro earlier this year. Like it was one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my life. It's 19,000 feet. If somebody said to me, Hey, you're going to climb 19,000 feet, you're going to run a marathon, right? I've I've run some marathons. Like when you think about 26.2 miles, like there's no way in hell I'm going to be but then when you get that the, get a schedule together and you break down your training sessions and you see oh the first week the biggest run is 6 miles oh mm-hmm. i could i could get through that right and then you've done 6 miles and then you look at the next week and you're like oh they bumped it up to 8 miles this week well i did 6 last week you know i could definitely i could get through 8 mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden the next one's 12 and you're like 12 that's going to be tough i you know that's doubling you know now we're doubling it but but then then you get through it and then you slowly crack away at the things you've convinced yourself you think you can't do mm-hmm. by taking small actions and small positive steps forward. And that's what I discovered. I discovered that the smallest change can lead to the biggest difference because that's how you can pick up your momentum. Yeah. It's a, if you read the book, eat that frog by Brian Tracy. Yep. Yep. I have that book. Eat that damn frog in the morning, right? Because it's the yeah. highest leverage of things that'll actually change the trajectory of where you're going. I mean, it's, you know, we, you and I could probably do a whole nother show on this because I, I could geek out on this stuff for a, lot, a long time, but I mean, it's the ego and there's this, uh, um, we've got this group coach because there's an entrepreneur group here in uh, the Twin Cities where it's like above the line or below the line. And it's really where you're coming at from your in, inner self, the, the, the bottom of the line, I'll, I'll have to say this and I'll, I'll link to it for the listeners, but it's like despair and hopelessness. But the top is um, just absolute peace and joy. And so like literally what you, what you would dish out is what you attract. And it's like, you get into these feedback loops and it, it, it takes a lot of time and it, it takes suppressing your ego and your emotions. And cause it's, it's, it's a challenging thing though. But and then going back to taking a one bite at a time, cause otherwise it's just, like you said, it's daunting, but it, you totally can change it. What are, what are the, uh, so of the, all the stuff that we've talked about, you've, you've, you've mentioned a lot of different things. You just kind of talked about some of your lessons. Is there something that we haven't talked about or something you want to highlight and leave the listeners with? Um, I, I just, it doesn't take a lot to make a change. I, that's really 
what I want the listeners to, to know that start with something small and that it will set um, a, a range of decisions in motion that you don't even know are, are, will happen. So the, uh, again, I mean, my, I think the biggest overall theme is just like small changes can lead to, you know, monumental outcomes. Um, and, and, you know, if you want to change your situation, the first thing I did when I came back from Bali is, is get rid of the cable box. That led to then me starting to listen to podcasts, right? Found the positive podcast. Then I started doing some meditation for 10, 15 minutes a day. Then that put me in a totally different state of mind. And I don't, I haven't been consistent with my meditation. I'll be the first one to admit it. But every time I do, like I have just such a, a clear vision of uh, how I want to move forward. And uh, I'm actually going to a meditation today, actually. So I'm proud of myself. Yes. Um, nice. So, nice. Um, so I, and so that led to that. Then I had like, all these things, these other things that were weighing me down, and I just slowly, slowly checked them off my list. And you know, it is okay to say no. Mm-hmm. Another important thing: it's okay to say no. I used to say yes and try to please everybody, but you can't please everybody, and you can't be the best person you are unless you love and respect yourself. And if you're miserable all the time about everything that you're doing, and you feel stuck, and you feel like this is not the life you want to live, then you're not going to be good for anybody. You have to get right yourself. So if you want to be good for others and Mm -hmm. as a leader in my company, I was never able to do that until the end, until like Mm -hmm. my last year there. And I had already determined I was like getting out. It was easier for me to be positive (laughs) (laughs) at at the time because I was just like, well, I had had enough of it. But yeah, I mean, that, that would be my overall, my overall theme. If the listeners want to get in touch with you or look for the book or follow you, what's the best way? So I would say, you know, find me on any of the social media channels, um, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Instagram, Instagram, I'm M-D-A-S-H-1. And on Facebook, I'm just Michael Dash, D-A-S-H. Same on LinkedIn. And then uh, my book will be coming out early next year. I do have a website. It's Michael G Dash. Dot com and you, there's a little link there you can just put your email address in and it'll keep you updated on when the book's coming out and so that's awesome michael had a blast on the show man you as well it was great it was great being a guest appreciate thanks. it yeah thanks for sharing your story absolutely well i'm sure you had plenty of your own takeaways from the episode and from listening to all michael's stories but if i were to just reiterate a couple things or give you my two cents one is that making sure that you have all your operating agreements all the stuff buttoned up so that way your partnership no matter whose life changes different circumstances that come involved you have a plan and you've already pre-written the choose your own adventure so there's nothing that's left up to ambiguity because when there's ambiguity that's when people get into self-survival mode emotions come involved and then it's all about me versus them and the only person that wins in that situation are the attorneys because there's too much emotional sunk costs into this where people will just do whatever it takes to win and then if you build all of the mechanisms in place to already have that pre-planned it actually eliminates conflict because you've already determined how all the different things will unfold should someone do something. The second takeaway is more on the on the emotional side is, you know what? I really do believe that if we know why we're doing this, as in why do we have our business? Why are we taking all this risk? And it's based in something that is bigger than us, bigger than our egos, then we can filter all of these hard decisions from employment issues, vendor issues, contracts, all this stuff into reality that is hopefully somewhat based in logic and not in egos or driving towards something just for the sake of winning. Because I think if you think about what Michael was talking about at the end of the podcast, he's happy he's prioritizing things that are fulfilling for him and for others and there's a bigger impact. So if we know why we're doing this, then we don't have to just get into some vicious cycle of a dysfunctional relationship, partnership relationship, or revenge for just the sake of doing it. So I hope that is a little bit of an eye opener. If you had any other great takeaways, 
Let me know. Shoot out any comments to the podcast. Give me a rating. Again, there's tons of information about partnership bio. It's different internal stuff on the GEXP Collaborative website. Other than that, I will see you next week.